This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Community Colleges are the state's economic engine for recovery. Our colleges provide credentials that meet regional and local workforce demands. For more info, visit TACC.org. And Texas 2036, building long-term data-driven strategies to secure Texas's prosperity through our bicentennial and beyond. Find out more at Texas2036.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for April 14th, 2023. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week we're going to talk about two notable court cases in the past week that gained national attention from Texas. The first is a case winding its way through the courts that could severely or completely limit Americans' access to the most commonly used drug to induce abortions. The other case is a murder case based in Austin involving the shooting of a Black Lives Matter protester in the days after the George Floyd killing. Um, here to talk about them, first, our women's health reporter, Eleanor Klebanoff. Hey, Eleanor. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, thank you. And Jolie will be joining us um, later in the show to talk about this murder case. But first, let's talk about the abortion case. It's a case in which a group of litigants sued the FDA approval of the abortion drug Mifeprestone. And a week later, that was about a week ago from when we're recording this, and um, essentially a federal judge in Texas granted an injunction in the plaintiff's favor. Eleanor, I want to talk a little bit first about this case, where it came from and things like that before we get into the impact. So can you first just kind of answer the question for me of who brought this and kind of what was their argument against this drug? Yeah, so this lawsuit centers on, like you said, mifepristone, which is the most common drug used um, alongside another drug um, to terminate pregnancies in the United States. And uh, it has long been a target of anti-abortion groups. But since the overturn of Roe v. Wade, it's really emerged as sort of this focal point um, because it's commonly used as sort of a workaround for um state level abortion bans, like the kind we have in Texas. It is much easier, obviously, to get some pills uh, quietly shipped to you than it is to, you know, get yourself to an abortion clinic in another state. Um, And so last fall, a group of anti-abortion doctors and medical uh, groups uh, filed this lawsuit, basically alleging that the Food and Drug Administration improperly approved mifepristone way back in 2000. there was, you know, their case had a lot of holes in it, specifically the fact that there is a six-year statute of limitations to challenge FDA approval. Um, But they filed this case, you know, very intentionally in Amarillo, Texas, where there is only one judge, uh, Matthew Kaczmarek, who is, um, before joining the federal bench in 2019, was you know, active in the anti-abortion movement and worked for um, a conservative Christian law firm here in Texas. So they felt like they had pretty good odds. And uh, that bore out this uh, this week or last week now. Yeah. So tell us about the judge's decision a week ago um, from today. So uh, Judge Kaczmarek released his long awaited ruling um, on Friday night. It was Good Friday around 530 p.m. Um, The ruling was 
not uh, unexpected. Um, you know, he basically agreed with all of the arguments brought by the anti-abortion groups, um, you know, cited their um, briefs as evidence, cited a lot of anti-abortion studies, some of which have been debunked. And I think most surprisingly, you know, the ruling used extremely partisan language that really showed Judge Kaczmarek's um, hand in a lot of ways, you know, language that is used exclusively by the anti-abortion movement. And in some cases, you know, really language used by the fringes of the anti-abortion movement. Um, so the ruling was just a pure victory for anti-abortion groups and said, you know, he said basically he gave seven a seven day window for the, it to be appealed. But according to the original ruling at midnight tonight, Friday night, uh, seven days after the original ruling, Mifepristone would be become an unapproved drug. He basically took us back to before 2000, before the drug was approved and nullified everything that has happened since. And and so basically that would mean that it would be illegal to prescribe or take the drug for the purpose of inducing an abortion? Yeah, I mean, the how it would actually be enforced is like sort of a separate question, but the mm -hmm. it basically would be like the drug, you know, it, it just like almost like doesn't exist in the United States mm -hmm. in many ways. Like the drug companies would not be authorized to make it. The FDA would not be giving them their stamp of approval. Anyone who had it, you know, there's a lot of questions about like how you would be in, enforce that. But, you know, people trying to operate within the bounds of the law, uh, would not be able to use, prescribe, uh, dispense, or produce that medication. So as seems to be a trend lately in the uh, court system, this immediately prompted quite a bit of confusion. There was almost simultaneously a ruling in Washington state in which the FDA was ordered to not revoke approval for this pill. Um, it also then the case then moved on to the Fifth Circuit, where there was a sort of mixed ruling and decision heading up to this midnight deadline that we're talking about right now. So just give us the lay of the land. You don't have to go walk us through every single step here. But where do we stand at, you know, almost one o'clock on Friday afternoon here? Right. I mean, and that Washington case really throws a wrench in the whole thing, um, because Confusingly, that ruling is only binding on the 17 states that filed that lawsuit. So we are about to have two different sets of rules about how a federal agency governs a drug in one country, which is pure chaos, which is part of why uh, the Fifth Circuit was asked to weigh in. Um, they offered a compromise ruling that in some ways, frankly, made things even more confusing. Um, you know, they said, you know, mifepristone does not become an unapproved drug. But instead, we just roll it back and reinstitute some of the restrictions that were in place, uh, you know, back in 2016 and sort of nullify everything that happened since then, um, which is, you know, in the eyes of, you know, the Department of Justice, the FDA and anti or an abortion advocates better than it being entirely unapproved, but really puts a huge number of restrictions on the drug that make it much harder to access, including the a big piece of this is that in 2019, a generic version of mifepristone was approved. So this nullifies that approval and basically orders a drug company to stop making the generic version, which has all kinds of complications, considering it's still supposed to be approved in 17 states. So all this is super chaotic. Nobody knows what it means, which is why they've asked the Supreme Court to weigh in. And the Supreme, they filed this morning, filed briefs with the Supreme Court asking for emergency intervention. 
we are currently standing by for that um, to, you know, for them, basically they have to decide by midnight if they're going to step in or not. Otherwise the fifth circuit's ruling goes into effect and we descend into a little bit of federal judiciary mayhem. So the, the options here for the Supreme court would be to essentially stay the ruling or uh, while further proceedings happen, which would essentially maintain the status quo related to this drug or to essentially not stay either like by rejecting the appeal or, you know, by asking for more information, but not stepping in and blocking it. If that were the case, what would that mean for abortion access? You mentioned this is one of the most common drugs, but maybe not the only method of abortion. So what would the abortion landscape look like if this drug were taken off the market? Right. So we should start by saying abortion remains illegal in Texas and nothing about this case will change that in any meaningful way. Um specifically medication abortion is illegal. It is specifically illegal to mail medication abortion in Texas. Um, this case, as I already explained, you know, is in Texas for sort of litigation reasons, not necessarily impact reasons. So it will have an impact for clinics in the surrounding states where Texans are flocking to in, you know, significant numbers to get abortions. Um, some clinics are preparing if mifepristone you know, is moved off the market, or if it just becomes too confusing to know what to do, they're preparing to go to misoprostol only abortions, where instead of a two drug combination, you just use the second drug, which does work. It is on the whole less effective and has higher side rates of side effects. Um, you know, it is still, it's like a gold standard drug by the World Health Organization. It is still safe to use. Um, in most of the world, they do misoprostol only abortions. So that's certainly still an option. Um, and then, um, you know, some clinics are saying they're just going to go to surgical abortions only. We already have like a very um, threadbare abortion system in this country. We had that before Roe was, was overturned. Now we have, you know, 13 states that have essentially banned abortion, one of them being Texas. So like, the clinics that are taking in uh, patients are already so booked out. They're already so overwhelmed and removing medication abortion, which is very like sort of uh, it's not as labor intensive um, would have like real ripple effects. I think sort of across the country at narrowing an already pretty narrow abortion access landscape. Yeah. And so this has a nationwide impact less of or virtually no impact in Texas in terms of, uh, you know, at least access in Texas, but it was nonetheless filed in Texas. And, and one thing that it does is shows you a little bit about the legal kind of situation we have in this state is, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, and you mentioned in a previous uh, story, this is the case that was filed in a state where abortion is illegal in a city where even before abortion became illegal here, there wasn't an abortion clinic. Rather than say a state where the drug is still being used or in a place like Maryland where the FDA is headquartered. And the reason is because of this judge, Kaczmarek, right? And the opportunity to um, you know, bring cases specifically to him. Can you talk a little bit about why him, who this guy is, but also how it's possible to kind of funnel cases to him? 
Yeah. And, you know, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is the group that brought this lawsuit, you know, they say they have doctors in the Texas panhandle who say, you know, they've been harmed by having to treat patients who have experienced, you know, have undergone medication abortions. Um, their group, you know, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine incorporated in, in Amarillo, um, but all, but you know, they also have doctors in other places on this lawsuit. And the reason they chose to file in Amarillo of all places is because of Judge Kaczmarek. This is this is this idea of judge shopping or forum shopping, sort of trying to find almost guarantee that your case will get in front of a specific judge. Um, and in this case, you know, a specific conservative Trump appointed judge has come under a lot of attention recently. Um, you know, importantly, we should say, like, no one's doing anything wrong or illegal, technically, um, you know, in the way it's just the way the courts are set up in Texas, um, specifically mm -hmm. Texas as such a vast state and a inconsistently populated state, you mm -hmm. end up with, you know, this one, for example, up in the panhandle, this one judge covers a vast region of the state, but a very small number of people. And so there's only really enough work to justify one judge, which means that if you file an Amarillo, there's a 95% chance your case gets randomly assigned to Judge Kaczmarek. Um, mm -hmm. There are ways to circumvent this. The chief judge in each um district could come in and say that's not how we're going to do this anymore we want to shake things up we're going to randomly assign you you know to any judge in the district um and this is not just happening with judge kesmeric we should say there's a couple of federal judges in texas all of whom were appointed by president trump who have become very popular filing locations for um conservative groups and also specifically for attorney general ken paxton as he seeks to challenge Biden administration's uh, or the Biden administration's policies um, and get a favorable ruling that again then kicks up to the Fifth Circuit, which is known as a very conservative um, appeals court, and then yep. to the conservative dominated Supreme Court. Yeah, it's almost like a, a pathway where you don't really have to worry about any court kind of controlled by anyone other than, you know, people appointed by Republicans to to hear your cases. And, and you've mentioned in a prior story about this uh, this particular judge, Kaczmarek, you know, we he's seen a lot of very high profile cases come his way in Amarillo, Texas, including, you know, reinstating the Trump era remain in Mexico policy, um, striking down Biden administration efforts to protect LGBTQ workers and, and, and trans youth, um, you know, ruling on a longstanding federal program that gives teens confidential contraception, uh, confidential contraception violating, you know, saying that that standard uh violated state law so just a situation where this judge in amarillo has seemed to amass a significant amount of power and and go from there i mean one one question you mentioned that there are other drug alternatives what's stopping these uh lawyers from from bringing similar challenges against those drugs as well nothing uh, and the original lawsuit actually challenged sort of the two drug regimen. And so originally they were really trying to go after both of them. Um, the case has sort of gotten narrowed in amended complaints and things like that. Um, but certainly, I mean, this is just sort of kicking the door open to a much wider sort of agenda that's, you know, if they can get mifepristone banned, they can get misoprostol banned, they can come after contraception, emergency contraception. And we should say like today it's abortion. Um, this idea that the FDA, an independent regulatory body, does not have the authority to decide what drugs are approved and that two and a half decades later, a single judge can come in and start questioning that 
has like massive implications for our entire system of sort of uh, regulation of anything. And I mean, I think we can all think of recent drugs like the COVID vaccine that, you know, are going to end up getting challenged in court using this as precedent. And it, a lot of like pharmaceutical companies have come forward and there was a big letter that they signed on Monday. It was like 400 companies basically saying like, we cannot continue to take on the cost and the risk and, you know, of innovating and creating new drugs. If we fear that approval could get overturned, it is basically meaningless if a judge disagrees with it. So this has much bigger implications than just abortion. Well, it seems like we might be in a situation kind of like we were in the uh, aftermath of SB8 going into effect, or or I guess not in the aftermath, right before it went into effect, where we were waiting to see whether the Supreme Court ruled. We had a, a midnight deadline. That in that case, the Supreme Court did not act and allowed that law to go into effect. We shall see what happens this time as we go on with this countdown. Uh, thank you, Eleanor, for explaining this to us. Uh, we will now pause uh, to hear a message from our sponsors. Methodist Healthcare Ministries is committed to health equity, striving to create more fair and just opportunities for all to thrive. Learn more at mhm.org. And Lone Star College works for Texas, providing real-world workforce training in state-of-the-art facilities to meet employers' demands. Find out more at lonestar.edu. Okay, for the second segment, we are joined by Jolie McCullough, the, our criminal justice reporter. Hello, Jolie. Thanks for joining us. Hello. You have been watching this case of Daniel Perry, a U.S. Army sergeant, who on the same evening of the Mifford Preston ruling, probably about an hour, hour and a half later, was found guilty by an Austin jury of murder for the shooting of Garrett Foster during protests in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. The next day, Governor Greg Abbott announced on Twitter that he wanted to pardon Perry, noting that Perry said the shooting was in self-defense. Um, this has sparked a lot of conversation and outrage around, you know, criminal justice, uh, the pardon process in Texas and other things with folks noting that it's highly unusual for Abbott to suggest intervention in a case like this, particularly since Perry has not even been sentenced yet. Um, Jolie, I want you to start by just explaining to us what happened that night in 2020. Um, I know that there's a lot that is not agreed upon that is in dispute about what happened, but there are some facts that seem to be acknowledged by both sides of this case. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened in this shooting? Sure. Um, so this is about, it was about two months after George Floyd was murdered. And um, as we all know, there were nationwide protests that continued for months and months. And this was one of those nights in downtown Austin where there were protesters um, marching and Daniel Perry um, drove his car into a crowd of protesters. And uh, one of those protesters was Garrett Foster, who was armed with an AK-47, as is his legal right to do so in the state of Texas. Um, and very quickly, uh, Daniel Perry shot at him multiple times um, through his car window and killed him. Those are the agreed upon facts. What the where the difference it comes in is, um, did Daniel Perry intentionally drive into these this crowd of protesters in an act of aggression? Mm -hmm. um, did and and that's the big one. And the other big one is, did Garrett Foster raise his rifle? toward Daniel Perry, um, in which case 
he would have been acting in self-defense if someone's aiming a gun at you. Um, those are the things that were that are that the two sides say two different things on. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, a a situation where what what how those two questions are answered determines how the state's stand your ground law comes into effect here, right? Like, essentially, explain to us how this stand your ground law works and how it might play in this case. Correct. So first of all, if he drove into them intentionally with an aggressive nature, that makes him the instigator of the event. Like he's instigating violence in that in that act if he was intentionally driving into them. Um, Perry had said he was distracted by a text message. Prosecutors said, you know, they brought evidence saying the timing of when he got a text message or when he responded to a text message didn't match up with the time in which he actually drove into the protesters. Um, and the other thing being, so so if he wasn't, if he was just mindlessly driving and a bunch of protesters started attacking his car, they were kicking his car, one of the protesters has admitted he kicked the car. Um, and that would be, he's not the instigator of the violence. So the question first is, did he instigate the violence? And the second being, if Garrett Foster raised his rifle at him and he had a a reasonable threat to his life, that he was in fear for his life, you can act in self-defense in that moment. Um, and so those are the big things that come into play. And as you said, the stand your ground law, this has become a huge political fight. Um, we saw this as a similar thing, not quite the same, but similar with the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Um, but there is this question of what your intentions are and also what the actions were of the other party of the, in this case, the, the victim's party. Um, so those are the two things that are really coming into play here. And this is the big fight being that, you know, this is the, these protests inherently were incredibly political and governor Abbott and a lot of conservatives have come out saying, you know, they, these were riots. They, they're arguing that this was all by the protests themselves were violent. Um, and they've really come out hard against these protesters. They've raised criminal penalties for protesters um, in the legislative session afterward. Um, they've come down really hard on any type of action that's come out of these and these quote, defund the police movements and really just backed themselves really hard into we will stand for law enforcement. This is our, this is our, like, this is our line that we've drawn. Um, and that's come against this, this so that's all happening in this moment where they're really defending Perry. This is an army sergeant who says he killed this man in self-defense, and they are one hundred percent behind him. Yeah. So you what you end up is a situation where this case is on Tucker Carlson the night um, I believe of the um, of the guilty verdict. He's he's criticizing questioning Greg Abbott's decision, and then Greg Abbott comes out on Twitter the following weekend and says what. Yeah, so Tucker Carlson um, basically said Abbott's, Abbott had declined his invite to come on the show that night and by doing so essentially was saying there is no right to self-defense in Texas. Um, so, you know, Saturday, that's Friday night, Saturday afternoon, Abbott comes out on Twitter and says, I'm moving as fast as I can to pardon um, Sergeant Perry. Um, essentially saying, you know, I will paraphrase here, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but he's saying that there is... And stand, the stand your ground laws tried and true in Texas and that progressive prosecutors um, targeting the Travis County District Attorney Jose Garza, who is, you know, a, a progressive uh, district attorney, 
he's saying they're the ones who are kind of making this political. Like he should have, basically there's been the argument that he should have never been prosecuted in the first place. So he's, he's asked the board of pardons and paroles to hand him a recommendation for a pardon, um, which is legally required. Abbott can't pardon on his own without a recommendation from the board. Um, a board I will note that he appoints all the members of. So, um, but it still is, it's, it's still a board that he has to get the word from. Um, but he has essentially told them to hand him a part of a pardon recommendation. Tell us how, tell us what the general process is here for a pardon. What, what kind of investigation does that board do? When do they kind of make a determination? And how does this differ from that? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's really hard to say because this is not really ever happened before. <laughs> um, generally speaking, you know, when a jury finds someone guilty of a crime, um, that is the assumed verdict, right? You're, that's the word. And then it goes to appeals courts, right? Like there are higher courts in district level and statewide level, and even you get into federal level that kind of look into any errors that happen in trial, any wrongdoings by prosecutors, by defense attorneys, by judges, um, any mistakes or any any misconduct. And they look into that and decide, okay, was there anything in this case that really needs to have a second look? Um, or and should, do we need to redo this case entirely even sometimes? And then if that doesn't happen, say it's generally got like there's the big case in death penalty cases where pardon is pretty much the last resort um where you can as you're about to be executed you have an execution date the governor can um commute pardon you by commuting your sentence and that pardon would be changing your sentence from death to life mm -hmm. um but the main way that pardons happen is generally abbott has only done a handful of pardons every year it's always years or decades after the crime that was committed. And it is I, almost always for cases that never actually involved any jail or prison time. It's probation, it's fines. Um, it's a way of clearing someone's record so they don't have this criminal um, conviction on their record for whatever reason that you know spoke to the governor that he's willing to do that for these people. Um, but it's really, it's an act of mercy almost almost exclusively, not an act of overturning the judicial system, which in this case is what Abbott has made clear he intends to do. Like he doesn't believe Daniel Perry should have been convicted and he seeks now to overturn or to essentially to forgive him of this crime that he doesn't think is a crime. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And so basically Abbott can't act until the board moves. Has has there been any indication? Do we do we have any insight as to what the board, what the next steps are for the board here? Yeah. So the board has said they're, they've started. They've started their investigation. I mean, it really it's it's generally they would look. You would think they would look. <laughs> this is all you would think because again, this hasn't happened before. Um, they will do. They said a full and proper investigation. Um, what that looks like is still unclear, the district attorney's office has had sent them a letter requesting them to please review the entire case record, um, which I will say is not done yet because Daniel Perry hasn't been sentenced. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we and and as we saw um, 
as we saw this week, more more evidence has just become has become unsealed that they're on Daniel Perry's character because there's a lot of things that can't come out in the guilt innocence phase of trial because it's not relevant to the case that you can bring up in sentencing. So you can say, okay, we found this person guilty of the crime, but now when we're weighing whether to, so in this case, murder a first degree felony, whether to give him closer to five years or closer to life in prison, now we can look at like the entirety of his character, of his previous criminal history, things like that. Um, and that is where a lot of things come out. And that's what the the records that were unsealed this week were um, of Daniel Perry's phone records, his social media posts, where there is a, I will say, a plethora of racist comments, of comments and messages and discussions of him very clearly detailing his desire to kill protesters. Um, and so it's... It, you, the case isn't done yet is what all this to say. So if the if the parole board is waiting to wait for all of the case evidence to come out is unclear. Um, mm -hmm. But it's something that, you know, the district attorney has requested that they do so. They've requested that they speak to Garrett Foster's family, um, which is obviously something that has not come up um, in any of the conversations um, or comments by Abbott. Mm -hmm. So, it, I mean... Unclear when they will move, but as um, as the district attorney points out, and as Perry's attorneys point out, you know we're still focusing on sentencing because Daniel Perry's case is not over yet. Yeah, you know, so this obviously raises questions about um, you know the pardon process and and when is an appropriate time to do this, and when you should make your decision about whether you want to pardon someone, and how much information you should base it on. I mean, it also I just. I think is worth noting here the the questions about the stand your ground law here because I mean it does seem just like a pretty terrible situation where it is legal to carry an AK-47 on the streets of Austin you know and in, in a protest even in a place you know during a time where clearly tensions were high and and there was a lot of kind of emotion on in every side of the equation there um, and it is also reasonable, it is legal to shoot someone when you have a reasonable fear to, um, you know, uh, that your life might be at risk or your safety might be at risk. And I think, you know, in many cases, many people would see it as a reasonable fear if someone is watch walking forward towards you in an angry crowd carrying an AK-47 that, you know, something might be at risk. So, I mean, if the situation is as Abbott describes it, what you were possibly talking about here is a situation where everyone followed the law and someone ended up dead, um, which in and of itself is not the greatest, you know, result. No, I mean, and, and so that's the whole, that's kind of the the interesting, just like the, the, the interesting point of all of this is that this is an incredibly complicated case. Um, yeah. I don't think anyone was like, oh, for sure, Daniel Perry is going to be convicted. I think it was it's a very tough case. Um, there was evidence on both sides presented in a two week trial and jurors deliberated for 17 hours. Um, so this is something that was that really was gone over and there were different I mean, it could have gone either way. That That's always the thing. Yeah. And the jury decided there was enough evidence to show that Daniel Perry, that this was, that he committed murder. Mm -hmm. um, and 
you know, if that is the wrong judgment, one would hope, you know, appellate courts or whoever would come through and figure that out as is the system that we have and is the system that Abbott has deferred to in every other case that has come across his desk in the last eight years. But in this case, Abbott has, without any indication that he's, you know, reviewed the case file, which of course, you know, has still is still sealed. A lot of it seemingly has not been put out yet um, without any indication that he's um, he, anyone in his office was sitting in on the trial. Um, he has determined after being called out um, by the hardline conservatives that he has he's decided that he shouldn't be ha- have been convicted of this crime. Yeah. All right. Well, this will be one worth keeping an eye on as it progresses. Thank you, Jolie, for coming on to explain this. Uh, thank, thank you, you. to Ellen, Eleanor and thank you to our uh, producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, the uh, Texas Association of Community Colleges, Texas 2036, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, and Lone Star College. We'll talk to you all next week. We